Welcome to the Governance, Law, and Economics Lecture Series, hosted by the Koch Center for Leadership and Ethics at Emporia State University. The Governance, Law, and Economics Lecture Series is designed to highlight the three institutions that must work together to support and defend a free civil society. Joining us this episode is Dr. Jamie Lemke. She is a Senior Research Fellow and Associate Director of Academic and Student Programs at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. She's also a member of the Graduate Faculty of George Mason University and a Senior Fellow in the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. Her talk is titled, Women's Economic Rights, History, and Why It Matters. Then someone else is 
exerting themselves into your process and they're taking authorship over some component of your life. Now, if we look at the case of women in American history, and specifically a lot of this conversation is going to focus on married women, because it's through structures of the family and marriage that most legal disabilities uh, that women have faced over time, not just in the United States, but in cultures across the globe, have actually been enforced. Um, so it's primarily within the family that these things actually get uh, practiced and exercised. And so when you get married, what happens in the American tradition, which of course uh, was initially imported from the British tradition, um, is that the very being or legal existence of a woman is suspended during her marriage, or at least is incorporated and consolidated into that of the husband, under whose wing protection and cover she performs everything. So this is, if you've ever heard, this is, you know, $100 word, whatever. But now you can sound fancy and use it. This is where the idea of coverture comes from. So if you've ever heard of the idea of the doctrine of coverture within family law, it's this idea that there's one person who has the authority and it's really that person who is in charge and responsible for all of the decisions that's made within that unit. So in this American and British tradition, it's the, the male head of household that has this authority. What this means in practical terms is that women can't independently own land, they can't keep wages, they can't sign contracts, um, they can't stand for themselves in court. Um, this includes, among other things, not being able to write your own will which of course is a big deal for many people because your will is the vehicle through which you can create something in this life and then pass it on to a future generation. So we're not talking here about just limiting women's decisions about what they can do in this current lifetime or in this current moment, but actually their ability to plan and to do meaningful things into the future and with respect to future generations. An extra fun little wrinkle here in this story is that not only does your husband get this degree of control over your economic decision making, it's pretty darn hard, if not actually just straight up illegal, to get divorced, depending on where you live. Um, so for the first half of the 19th century, um, in South Carolina, it was just completely illegal. But the most common regime in different states was that if you were a man, you would prove that your wife cheated on you to a court, and then that court would give you permission to exit that marriage. Um, infidelity was not seen as problematic in the other direction, so they weren't concerned about that with respect to the ladies. Um, what women had to prove instead was that they'd been abandoned for at least seven years. So think about that. You aren't allowed to make any economic decisions on your own, and you have to wait without anybody to make them for you or to help you with them for a full seven years before the court will recognize that scenario and allow you to separate from your current marriage. And this would have been important because if you were considered uh, widowed, then some of these disabilities lessen because the law is making a, a little bit of an exception to kind of allow you to sustain yourself. Um, so you're living in this world where if your husband is treating you badly, is abusing this power, you can't say no to him. So the threat of exit, the possibility of exit, is a very important protection that people have in all different walks of life. 
So your boss is being a jerk. How much that's going to keep you up at night is going to depend on whether or not you feel like you have other options. Can you tell? I had a professor who used to say, um, they can't tell me anything to do in the classroom because I have seven jobs. And if they try, I'll tell them to go play in traffic. Because he had all of these other options. So it was not an issue for him. It was not a problem if he needed to go elsewhere. So in the case of marriage, if you can actually have the ability to sustain yourself economically, then you can leave an abusive relationship. Then you don't have to be trapped in an exploitative situation. So kind of the ability to exit, to move somewhere else, this is really important and an important theme, and it's something that impacted women a lot in American history. But the big question overall that I have is, of course, that world I just described is not the world we live in today. Women are equally, um, are, are treated equally under the law in the United States. That does not mean equal outcomes. That does not necessarily mean the attainment of equity. But there is equal legal treatment. And so the question is, how did so much change? How did we get from this early 19th century world of all of these economic disabilities. And by the way, that wasn't new. Literally thousands and thousands of years, that had been the dominant social practice for most of the societies on the globe. So we're talking about institutions that began in ancient Mesopotamia that end between 1840 and 1920 in the United States. It's amazing, it's an incredible change. So understanding the way that the American political system, the access to markets that came about for the first time on a, on a large scale in the 19th century, industrialization, the way that these things impacted the choices that people were able to make for themselves really brought about this sea change in the kind of life that was gonna be possible for a woman to obtain. So I'm going to talk a little bit more specifically um, about those three factors, starting with access to markets. So new opportunities to work outside the home resulted in women gaining respect, skills, and influence. So what were those opportunities? Uh, it's, if you've heard that women started working with Rosie the Riveter, you've been lied to in so many ways. <laughs> that is so false, I don't even hardly know where to start with it. Um, but the first is that women have actually been engaging in production since the dawn of humanity. So most household goods that were produced and used would have been created by women who were working within the home to weave cloth, to make soap, to make candles, to cure foodstuff, to preserve foodstuff. So all these things were produced and sometimes used at home, sometimes traded or sold to the neighbors. So women were really actively involved in the economy. But this is what it, it looked like in the 18th century. So these are the tools that are available to be able to take uh, a sheet and turn it into a sweater, essentially. So this is the process through which these women are working by themselves inside the home. They're creating textiles. Beginning in about 1817, the United States begins to create uh, these communities 
filled with this kind of technology. So this is a large-scale loom. The very first ones that were devised, so going back to 1820, 120 years before Rosie the Riveter, these were four times as productive as that household loom that I showed you, which means that a woman can make four times as much, or anybody who wanted to use those looms, it just happened to be historically that they were women. Um, they could make four times as much within the same amount of time as they could before. So what this means is that women are now quadrupling in their productivity and in, their, in the value that their labor has to a marketplace, to a wage marketplace. And that was just the start. So these machines got just exponentially more powerful over time. There's innovations as we move from um, water power to steam power, uh, more finely tuned motors, better processes. So that productivity only goes up and up. And so what this means, if you are an industrialist, so if, and if you're one of the first American industrialists, that means that you're, you're one of the first industrialists in the world. So there was also industrialization in Britain that happened before the United States, began before the United States. We actually stole it from them. So the you know, United States um, economic power began with an act of industrial espionage. So I have no idea why no one's made like a Jack Ryan movie out of it yet, but maybe, maybe one of you can start that creative endeavor. Um, so there's this opportunity to take advantage of this increased productivity of women's labor. And if you're a factory owner, you now have to educate people and convince them that this new economic opportunity exists. Factories of this type that you see in the picture here on the left literally just did not exist before. They weren't a thing. They weren't in the imagination. Something that people considered one of their life opportunities to go into a city and work. Everybody was working on the farm. Everybody. If you were in the United States in 1800, 95% chance that you were working on the farm your whole life. So the fact that this opportunity is created and introduced means that there's now this educational burden. So these factory owners have to go out and persuade these young women working on farms that it's going to be a valuable opportunity for them to consider coming into the factory and to consider using their time and their labor this way. So they have this persuasive burden to convince these women to exercise their autonomy in a different way they currently are. So part of what this meant historically is that the factory owners would try to make these jobs really appealing. So they would combine them with educational opportunities and social opportunities for these young women. Um, of course, at all times, these girls working in the factories the average person working in one of these factories would have been an 18 to 24 year old woman. She would work there for three or four years before she um, you know, got married and moved on or, or decided what she was going to do with her life next. So it's kind of like the early college option in a sense, um, except a lot harder um, and no extra credit. Um, but if you were lucky, maybe you'd get like an extra piece of cornbread on Sunday or something. I don't know um, what your grade um, so what they have to do is they have to convince these women that they're going to, to come and take this chance, and that's why they make it appealing. 
So in order to beat the competition to this task, so you have, because of this technological innovation, uh, women are productive in a way that they weren't before. Um, of course, multiple people are going to want to try to take advantage of this new economic opportunity. And so the factory owners actually hire headhunters to go around and talk to these families. Um, so they're engaging in this really active and robust kind of competition. And what they are competing over is for the work energy of women to come and work in these factories. So if someone is competing over you, that's a really good position to be in. That means that you're the one with the bargaining power. You're the one who has the ability to command additional respect, better treatment, and to, in general, dictate the terms of what that interaction is going to look like. Um, so this is an example of an advertisement. Uh, so one of these headhunters from the factories would have put this in the newspaper, which would have been one of the main ways that you would get information out to those rural areas. And he would say, I'm looking to hire all these people. Um, come and meet me in such and such at a particular time. Um, and we know that, it's per that they were persuasive. One of the amazing things about studying these early women in the workforce is that since they were needing to be persuaded to take advantage of this new opportunity, what it meant is that they were often very entrepreneurial. They were kind of taking a risk at being willing to try out this new thing. And they were also getting access to this educational opportunity, which means people wanted to take advantage of it who had you know, aspirations to better themselves and to really become more educated. So a lot of these women were really active writers. And they actually produced uh, edited and wrote all of the articles in their own magazine. So you have this really like female entrepreneurially driven project that they're taking, um, that they're participating in. And in addition to those kind of formal writings, they also were robust letter writers. So this is a letter that was written by one of the women working in these early factories. Um, and she says, if anyone told me three weeks ago that I'd ever go to work at Lowell, I would have ridiculed the idea, I'm paraphrasing here clearly, um, I would have ridiculed the idea, I would have said, damn Yankees, what are you talking about? Um, but they sent that recruiter out and they picked up 72 girls. So they did not all actually decide to go on a report for work at the same time. Um, and she says, this is her account, um, even though she got the lull fever, which is typhoid, she says it was still worth it to her. It was still worth it to her to take advantage of this opportunity. Why? She'd been initially trained as a teacher. Her friend Harry is teaching. But Orilla couldn't even get $1.25 a week. And so she went to Lowell. Um, she says she's earning more than two or three of us can back in Peru, New York, where we came from. The ability to create that for yourself is incredible. So these women were really able to save significant amounts of resources that they could then use to invest in themselves and their families. 
Um, so it was not uncommon um, for women to be able to save up over four or five years of work, the equivalent of about $20,000 in adjusted to current um, dollar values. I think most of us, you know, most of you in this room who are currently still an undergrad, you probably consider yourself lucky if you had $20,000 in the bank after you got out of college. Maybe, I don't know for sure, maybe, maybe you're working you know, insanely hard and you're coming out with that dollar value too. Um, but when you're coming out of a world where it wasn't really that possible for women to work outside of teaching and domestic service, that's pretty amazing. So they save up, they can begin to start families, they send you know, brothers, siblings, future husbands to medical school, to law school. So women are participating in actively constructing what their life and their family's life is going to be and participating in that advancement in a really meaningful way right from the beginning of commercial society. Another thing that really mattered in the American context that helped make such a difference in explaining why the experience of women was so different in the 20th century from what it had been at the beginning of the 19th century is that we had a political system that was adaptable and open to change. So in particular, the fact that the United States had a federal system which meant that states could enact different laws and make different legal changes. You didn't have to convince the whole country, you just needed to convince the state you lived in, you know, as a politician or as an interest group, um, that a, a change was gonna be meaningful and you could actually bring it about. There's another effect that happens when states are allowed to create different sets of laws for themselves, you get almost like a competitive effect. So like these women cho chose to move into the city to take advantage of these job opportunities, they also chose to move around to different states where the law was going to be more favorable to them. And I'll show you what I mean. So this is just the basic theory. In order for that competitive choice to work in the market environment, you need a couple of things. One is that people have to be able to choose where they're going to live. So note that for married women, not so easy. Because they can't be buying their own land, they can't be making decisions. Um, the husband has the firm veto power. So there's always negotiation. So of course in most families there's going to be a back and forth and most people are involved. Um, but it's that veto, that hard case, um, where this really, really matters. The second thing that has to happen is that jurisdictions must be able to offer meaningfully different law. And that is the case with respect to this particular set of practices regarding women because marriage law was determined at the state level. So if you were making this decision at the federal level instead, we wouldn't necessarily get this competitive effect. And so the increasing productivity and economic influence of women means that they now have the capacity to make decisions to do something like, I'm going to move out to Kansas City. I'm going to save up my money at this mill job, and I can move out west on my own. It was possible to buy a train ticket where you could get just about anywhere um, in the country for a few months, but by saving up your wages for a few months to maybe a year. And one of the reasons why uh, we know that the railroad played such an important role in the process of 
political change is that in United States history, um, there's a reason that the frontier had this great mythology about it. The frontier was where things could change on a pace that was unprecedented. Um, where you could, so it's not true that it was a lawless place, but it was a place where you could get really rapid institutional change. Um, that's why Las Vegas is still this place that you can go for either, we know it now more for quickie marriages, but uh, it got its reputation by being able to offer a quickie divorce since you used to have to do so much work in the courts and wait so much time to be able to get access to divorce. And this ability to dramatically change law, um, what this meant is that it was kind of a pull power that those Western states had. So once you could actually get out to the Western half of the country, and you gotta remember, for most of the 19th century, most of the West was not settled by the United States. To the extent it was populated, it was often populated by Native American tribes. Parts of it were still owned by, by Mexico or by Spain. So there's this um, kind of unsettled nature, which means you have the opportunity to create um, new ways of living. So that's what some of these entrepreneurial figures did. Um, so before these Western, the Western territories were states, they were managed under the territorial system, which meant that after you got to a certain stage, you'd be expected to introduce elections. But prior to that, there's like nobody from the United States out here. So you have the federal government simply appointing people who are going to be in charge. So these are often ex-military. Um, they are people who have a really vested interest in trying to increase the population of this part of the country because the United States is trying to bring all of that territory under American control, but you can't control a territory that nobody lives in. So these territorial governors have this mandate to increase population in order to bring those territories into the Union of the United States. And you can see them working hard. So these are both governors, the governor of Montana on the left and the governor of Colorado and Nevada used to be just one gigantic uh, territory. Um, both saying, here in Montana, this is where the good jobs are, um, especially desirable for women. And then you have this counterpart firing back, it'd be a great blessing if we could get an immigration of females to Colorado and Nevada. So this is not just a hypothetical. Not only our industry leaders, but also these political leaders really fighting to try to appeal to women. So this means that there's a set of political incentives in place that is just perfectly tailored to positive changes in women's rights and in the treatment of women in the society. So the political structure matters. The fact that you have this autonomy in law, the fact that you have this possibility of women making their own choices. This was an environment where change mattered. I spent a couple weeks in the basement of the Library of Congress. I went through all of these old newspapers. Um, that was something that I did when I was working on my dissertation. Um, I have not had time to spend two weeks doing anything um, so enjoyable since. Um, 
but there are literally hundreds of these that you can find in the archives of different uh, political leaders, different influential community members writing, go west, young girl. In Texas, they're paying servant girls $20 a month. This is, this is when they, they like to advertise the men sometimes. So don't worry, there's a little something here for you guys too. Don't worry, it's not all about women. Um, Garfield County has 1,100 unmarried men and only 28 unmarried women. Again, go west. Um, I think this is my favorite though, out of Utah. Uh, for humanity's sake and a mutual benefit to the race and to both sections of the country, do Mr. Editor earnestly recommend the emigration from down east of a few thousand virtuous and industrious young ladies. <coughs> so this competition is really incredibly active um, and it makes a really significant difference. Contrast this to a situation where you don't have economic rights, you don't have political rights, and you're basically living the only kind of life that is available to you already. There's not any options there. There's not any room for kind of competition, experimentation, and change. The third factor that of course was really important in American history is that not only were the political and economic incentives right, but also there were key figures who believed that economic rights were important for women. The women themselves believed it. This is an article from that magazine I was talking about earlier that was written and edited by the mill women. Um, women have an indefeasible and inalienable right to buy and sell, solicit and refuse, choose and reject, as have men. These propositions we are prepared to defend, and while we have mind, talent, acquisition, ability, and a pen, we will defend them. Why does this matter so much? So if economic freedom, if autonomy over their economic decisions wasn't something that these women valued themselves, then changing the world in a way that made it possible for them to make their own economic decisions wouldn't have been a good strategy to appeal to women, to convince them to either move to your territory or, or take a job with your company. So even in this competitive environment, you still have to have this underlying idea, this underlying understanding that the ability to make your own economic decisions matters. It also matters that the politicians were aware of this. They were aware that they needed to be preeminently liberal in social matters in order to actually get immigration and accomplish their goals. And also, reformers believed it. Um, so this is Susan B. Anthony. Um, these are her parents, so obviously these photographs were not taken on the same day. Um, her parents, Daniel and Lucy Anthony, were uh, the owners of a factory that employed women to produce textiles in Pennsylvania. So one of the reasons why Susan B. Anthony became motivated to be such an advocate for women's rights, one of the most important advocates for women's rights of the 19th century, is that she saw these women coming into work at her parents' factory, and she saw that they were capable, she saw that they worked hard, they were competent, and they could make their own decisions. She was furious that it was not possible for women to become a lawyer or to enter the thinking occupations. And so her ability to see women <coughs> engaging in the workforce, being productive, making a difference, that is what mattered to her and what had such an impact on her mind in terms of this old idea that women were just suited for different 
areas of life or different pursuits. This just doesn't seem right. This doesn't look like what's actually happening. So this is important both because I think it illustrates when you open up that economic opportunity to women, and I've been focused on women because that's my research area, but really most of what I'm saying applies to any group that is currently in a situation where they're not afforded the full rights and statuses of the same society that they live within. So we can generalize this as talking about many different populations of people. But the fact that that economic opportunity became open to them and they had that opportunity to demonstrate their skills and show their competence and value to the world instead of being confined into a different environment where they could not display those skills, that's what mattered. That's what changed ideas and ideas of very important people who wound up undertaking social movements and you know, igniting activities that wound up securing women the right to vote. So, so far, I've mostly been, given, been giving reasons why this change was so positive and, and worked out for women. Um, I'd be remiss if I pointed out that large-scale institutional changes, such as this dramatic restructuring of the way we thought about women and their potential and their ability to make their own economic decisions, that rarely is going to happen kind of in a straight line. You aren't going to move neatly forward up into truth, unfortunately. Um, and also, there are always going to be people who don't quite agree. So I'd be remiss if I didn't point out um, another very important political movement that began in the 19th century United States. And that was the movement, movement to restrict women from working in particular occupations in order to prevent them from challenging male breadwinners. Um, so this is an early court case over one of these suits. So for a long time, by 1895, the courts had been, for about 10 or 15 years, the courts had been striking down the idea that it was the appropriate domain of government to interfere in the employment relationship. Those were always cases where the employees in question were men. Once these suits began to be brought forward with just women, as the employees of concern, the, um, the jurisprudence suddenly changed. So I think there's some ideology that's important here, too. Um, but so, okay, so here's the basic idea. This is a judge who's writing about why it's okay to tell a woman that she's not allowed to do a particular job. And his argument is that injuring women in their sexual function, which he means reproductive function, um, is a danger which the state is justified in the exercise of its police powers. So he's making the argument that because it is so important for women to raise children, and there's a very ugly background here because this is during the period of the, the rise of the eugenics movement in both Europe and in the United States. And this was the idea that some populations of people are simply superior to others. Those were often defined, but not always along racial lines. And so the idea was if we take American women and allow them to do something other than raise a family, but we have all of these, you know, we have Irish people moving in, we have Chinese, we have now, you know, a free black population throughout the country all these other populations are going to reproduce and the white American population is not going to keep up. So there's this background here, this concern 
that if women depart and choose to exercise their autonomy by going into a career instead of raising a family, that they'll actually destroy the nation. And so the interest groups that are really concerned with this possibility um, wind up not only um, successfully protecting laws that limit women from working in dangerous occupations, um, but they also protect laws that limit the hours that women are allowed to work and limit how late in the evening women are allowed to work. Um, so this is, in 1918, just six states that they're calling out here and trying to shame for not limiting how many hours women can work, even though men are allowed to work longer. So the reason why that the birth of that idea is so significant is because it shows that we didn't really get a firm commitment to women being able to, being able to make the same economic choices that men could make. Instead, there's still progress to make on that margin. And in fact, it wasn't until the 1970s that it became illegal to use gender to discriminate in employment law. So this is not very long ago. These are laws that affected your mothers and your grandmothers. Um, so for a long time, we've been enacting legislation that's limited women's economic autonomy and economic freedom. Much of the globe still has some legislation of this type. Um, so this is looking at the frequency of restrictions on women's work in different parts of the globe. Um, so your blue bar shows um, the percentage of countries in a region where women are not allowed to work hazardous jobs. Um, the percentage where certain industries are off um, limits to female workers, and the percentage of countries that prohibit women from working at night. Um, so in Middle East and North Africa, South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Central Asia, you see in parts of the globe about half of those countries have these restrictions. Over a third of countries still restrict women's freedom to be able to choose where they're going to live relative to men. This takes the form of different requirements for being able to get a passport, being able to exit the country, being able to establish your own domicile, things like this. Over half of the countries on the planet prohibit women from working in at least some specific occupations. And there are 18 countries where husbands are actually legally permitted to prohibit their wives from working at all. And by the way, they're often overlapping. Um, so there are still parts of the world where these restrictions that were so um, prevalent and problematic in American history still exist, and women are still subject to them. And I should say, actually, not just women, but the society is subject to a limitation that is holding off the potential and the potential contributions of half of their population. So these are the 40 countries in the world who have the most significant gender gaps. This is by the International Monetary Fund, and they estimate the percentage of GDP that these countries sacrifice by limiting uh, women's contributions to the workforce. In some cases, um, up to 35% of GDP. So we're talking about cutting the wealth, the standard of living of everybody who lives in that country by a third of what it potentially could have been. And these are often not wealthy places. So we're talking about something that really is going to impact quality of life in a meaningful way. There's a big sacrifice um, that comes about with putting these restrictions on women and not opening up the economy and the polity to their contributions. 
So I think the United States case illustrates a few things that are important to keep in mind uh, for thinking about women's rights, but really the rights of any population that faces political and legal discrimination. And that's the importance of increased economic opportunity. Again, that opening of industrialization, this potential avenue to showcase what you can accomplish, and to be able to have the resources to make your own decisions and to be able to set aside anyone who's trying to, to limit you in your attempts to do so. Um, making it easier to cross borders. So again, that choice. The fact that you are empowered enough to be able to make a choice in where you're going to live and where you're going to invest your energy matters. And it mattered to the political treatment that these women experience. There are a lot of parts of the world where we're not so friendly with, with the idea of people crossing borders. Um, the United States right now, in many ways, is not always so friendly with the idea of people crossing borders. Um, so the fact that this choice and this ability to move um, made such a difference for the rights and the empowerment of a disadvantaged population, I think that's something that we need to not forget, that we need to remember that closing off borders often means closing them off to the least advantaged in those societies. And then the final thing, the importance of remembering that economic decisions aren't these trivial things, they're not material things. They're the substantive decisions that make up our lives and allow us to be the author that's writing our own story. And so remembering that restrictions on work are not trivial. Restrictions on the ability to establish a business are not trivial. These are not purely isolated financial matters. These are matters of autonomy, agency, and at their very heart, the ability to be um, a free individual. Perfect. Uh, join me in thanking uh, Dr. Lund. Thank you for listening to the Governance, Law, and Economics Lecture Series. To stay up to date on all the lectures in the series, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you prefer. For information on upcoming lectures and other events and activities hosted by the Koch Center for Leadership and Ethics at Emporia State University, follow us on Twitter at Koch Center or on Facebook at Koch Center ESU.